If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 27. Ezekiel chapter 27. Of the 48 chapters in Ezekiel, eight of these chapters deal with other nations, neighbors, foreigners, enemies. Why? Why did the Lord through Ezekiel spend so much time on those people? After all, Ezekiel was a prophet to the people of Israel, God's people. Last Sunday we saw that the place to begin is the reality that there is only one God. He is the God of the whole earth. And as a consequence, he has something to say. He is involved with the history and destinies of nations other than Israel. If one says there is only one God, then that God is not limited to one nation. And even though Israel was bound to God by covenant, which implied for some that God or Jehovah was in fact a tribal God of the Jewish people, he is the God of all the earth, of all creation. There are other reasons for devoting so many chapters to these nations. One is that what is happening in Jerusalem and Judah what will shortly happen when they will be conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. It's not to be seen in isolation. Events rarely happen in isolation. In studying such matters, such as historical events, we may try to focus on one particular aspect, one particular event. And in the process, we may lose sight of the fact that there was other stuff going on at the same time. Well, now that we live in a worldwide pandemic, I think we have a greater sense of the connectedness of things. Um, So when we read about Ezekiel prophesying against Jerusalem and Judah, we need to be reminded, and we are reminded in these eight chapters, that there was other stuff going on as well. Okay, it didn't happen in isolation. We saw that the four nations mentioned Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia all bordered Judah. So it's not like you can just sort of pull Judah out. It's surrounded by neighbors, and these neighbors are mentioned. And as a result, um, no commentary on the future of Israel, I think, would be complete without reference to her neighbors. You, You can't just lift Judah out and forget about everything else that's going on around On a wider scale, not just the neighbors that are bordering, you look at the world powers like Babylon and Egypt. Persia will come up shortly. Their foreign policies on some level affected Judah directly. And the question was this little little Jewish kingdom, this little Hebrew kingdom, um, what should we do? Should she be allowed to retain her independence? Or should she become a political satellite, a military staging area, maybe an international bargaining point? You know, I'll trade you Israel for something else. We can't ignore this, okay? We cannot ignore this. But what Ezekiel wants to point out, and God through Ezekiel, is that the final say in what would happen to Judah was not Babylon's or Egypt's or the surrounding neighbors, but was in fact God's. God is the God of all nations and the destiny of great powers and small powers are in his hands. 
the Lord God Almighty, Jehovah, Yahweh, controlled all things. The situation, though, if you just look at it, it would seem to be the reverse. And so a secular historian who is looking at this period of time in Jewish history might, in fact, imagine that, that Judah has just been dwarfed into insignificance, that Judah is really just a tiny Hebrew kingdom that really doesn't matter. The prophet tells us something quite different. Judah was at the center of God's activities in the world. But it didn't mean that the other nations weren't important. It didn't mean that God did not care or was not concerned about the other nations or that God was not involved in their existence and activities. As I mentioned last week, Ezekiel is not the only Old Testament prophet who spoke about judgment coming on other nations. Okay. What I am struck by, and I hope you are as we look at these chapters today in Ezekiel, is that while judgment is coming on the nations that are mentioned, there are seven in all, there's Moab, or Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and then Egypt, so seven nations. Great, great care is given in describing the judgment that is coming. It isn't as simply like, hey, you all are toast, okay? You guys have done these terrible things, and I'm just going to punish you. I'm going to judge you. Last week, we saw that it began with Tyre. We saw the four nations that are mentioned in one chapter. Then we have three chapters with Tyre, and then four chapters with Egypt. Tyre is a city about 100 miles from Jerusalem. It's 50, mile, or 50 miles south of Beirut. It was a major trade center due to its natural situation. It had Tyre was actually an island off this promontory, and so there were two natural harbors, and then they built a causeway, and so it was a great place to do trade. The Phoenicians are the ones who settled it, and it became a major economic power. Okay. Whenever threatened by danger, the people of Tyre could always retreat to the island, and that's where their treasure was, where their money was, that's where they had fortifications, and there they could be safe. The prophecy begins by talking about Tyre rejoicing over the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was its economic, its commercial competitor, its rival. So in chapter 26, uh, verse 2, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. And it could be, that Tyre imagined that all the trade that traditionally had gone through Jerusalem would now not go through Jerusalem since it was destroyed, would go directly to Tyre, and Tyre would make more money off of that. We see, and we saw last week, that the city of Tyre, the ancient city of Tyre, would suffer the consequences of her pride and delight at the fall of Jerusalem. It hadn't always been this way. By the way, Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, who built the causeway from the mainland to the island, was in fact an ally of David. And he helped Solomon build the temple. In 2 Chronicles 2.12, we read, And Hiram added, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. He has given David a wise son, endowed with intelligence and discernment, who will build a temple for the Lord and a palace for himself. Hadn't always been... Uh, there might have been some competition, but there had been an alliance between them, 
and now this is gone. Today our study begins in chapter 27 with a long poem. It is a funeral chant. One commentator describes it this way, it was sad when the great ship went down. Because in the first part of this poem, up to verse number nine, uh, Tyre is described as a great ship. Look at verse number one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Tyre. We've looked at laments. This is a sorrow. This is a grieving over something that has happened. Say to Tyre, situated at the gateway to the sea, merchant of peoples on many coasts, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You say, O Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. Your domain was on the high seas. Your builders brought your, your beauty to, or brought your beauty to perfection. They made all your timbers of pine trees from center. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. Of cypress wood from the coast of Cyprus, they made your deck inlaid with ivory. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail and served as your banner. Your awnings were of blue and purple from the coast of Elisha. Men of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. You skilled men of Tyre were aboard as your seamen. Veteran craftsmen of Gebel were on board as shipwrights to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors came alongside to trade for your wares. If we were to put these nine verses into one word, it would be the word beauty. Tyre is described by herself. You say, O Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. And this is not disputed. God does not dispute this. As the poem speaks of this beautiful vessel made of various woods with a fine embroidered linen sail, with skilled sailors, with veteran craftsmen on board, and here we come to an important truth that we should not lose sight of. I mean, first of all, it's great that Ezekiel does this. We're not just focused on Judah and we forget the rest of the world exists, okay? But there's something else, and that is the abilities and the gifts which individuals and nations have come from the one true God. It is not as though God gives gifts to his people and forgets everyone else, but everyone else has gifts. They have talents, they have abilities, and they all from, call, come from God. We should not imagine that somehow Tyre, as a pagan entity, somehow was able to achieve okay, this greatness, this beauty, merely based on human creative power. That the creator had nothing to do with this. It was all done by themselves. No. All that human beings can create and achieve has its roots in the ability given by the creator. Now these abilities may be twisted, they may be used in the wrong way, in proper ways, but it doesn't mean that the abilities came from humans alone. That's why we have this lament. God has given these wonderful gifts to Tyre. She has become like this beautiful seagoing vessel. And yet as we follow along, we see that in fact she has gone astray. We should not imagine, as I said, that spiritual gifts are given to God's people, that all other gifts come from a different source. Well, what source would that be? They all come from God. In examining the matter of calling and vocation, we saw that everyone has a calling, whether they're a Christian or not, whether or not they believe in God. 
they have a calling. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever or a non-believer is that the believer knows who has called. There is one who calls. Whereas an unbeliever, a non-believer might say, well, it's a natural gift. Maybe it's an inherited gift from my parents because they had these certain skills and so it's transferred to me. No, our calling comes from the one who calls. He is the creator. We are his creatures. We are his representatives on earth. We are made in the image of God. And God as the creator created things and we as human beings have been gifted to make things as well. In verses 10 through 24, we are given a list of sorts of the various peoples and nations who did business with Tyre. And we hear phrases like in verse number 10, bringing you splendor. Verse 11, they brought your beauty to perfection. So the issue of beauty is still there. The lament continues in verse number 25. I I won't read passage, I would encourage you to do it, that list all the nations and all the peoples who did business with Tyre. Verse number 25, the poem picks up again, at least if you look at the NIV, you see that it's now, it's gone from verse uh, to prose, and now it's a verse again. Look at verse 26. Your oarsmen take you out to the high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces in the heart of the sea. Your wealth, merchandise, and wares, your mariners, seamen, and shipwrights, your merchants and all your soldiers and everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. Then verse 34. Now you are shattered by the sea in the depths of the waters. Your wares and all your company have gone down with you. All who live in the coastlands are appalled at you. Their kings shudder with horror and their faces are distorted with fear. The merchants among the nations hiss at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Why the lament? We saw that Tyre was beautiful, that God had gifted her. Now she will be destroyed because of her delight at the fall of Jerusalem. Let me just say at this point, I'm convinced that God cares more for those who bear his image than oftentimes those who bear his image. It's been observed that in time of war, in time of conflict, it's always easier to kill the enemy if you think of them as less than human. Now, you may not think that person's not human, but the words, the pejoratives that are created to describe the enemy make it easier to kill that person, that one who bears God's image. But this is not how God acts. This is not how God brings judgment on nations and individuals. He created them. He recognizes them for who they are, those who are made in his image, those he has gifted, and those who have achieved great and beautiful things, just like the city of Tyre. When we get to chapter 33, when it returns to the issue of Judah, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Tyre was beautiful. It was a great nation. But they fell short. How? Well, this is what we see in chapter 28. Look, if you would, at chapter 28, beginning at verse number 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
in the pride of your heart, you said, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining armor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a god, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hand of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. It is the ruler of Tyre who is addressed in these verses. Uh, as a prince, as a king, as a ruler. And he is condemned not for what we might imagine, this extravagant pride, what one writer calls overweening pride. He's so full of pride, full of pride but with a false understanding of reality, which he is responsible for. In a word, it is self-deification. I am a God. I'm as wise as a God. In your pride of heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God, he should know better. And why should the ruler of Tyre know better? In a word, death. One day he will die. Does he imagine he will never die? And if he is a god, why is it in fact that he will die? So in verse, verses 9 and 10, will you then say, I am a god in the presence of those who kill you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised. Death is God's refutation of humanity's habitual self-deification. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, who were promised by the serpent, you will be like God. And through human histories, humans have said from time to time, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God. And God's answer is death. You will die. For those who think you are as wise as a God, the answer is death. But what is God's response? It is a lament. It is a lament. It isn't like, okay, you think you're a God, you're toast. You're going to die. That's it. End of story. But that, in fact, is not what we find in the rest of the chapter. We find a lament, a song of sorrow, in which the king of Tyre, and I would say all of humanity, are viewed in terms of his original state, our original state in the Garden of Eden. Look, if you would, at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, em and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. 
Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were crafted, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for, I, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. This, this is a description of Adam in the garden, who is our ancestor, who was the ancestor of the king of Tyre. And so God sees him as a descendant of Adam, but he goes back to his origins and says, you know, back in the day, you in fact were the model of perfection. You were full of wisdom and beauty. Adam gave names to all the animals. He was wise. But then sin changed the picture. And the glory that was humanity, the glory that was the king of Tyre, is ruined by sin. And in this case, particularly violence. Look at verse 16. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. This is almost a a reenactment of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. Now come, in fact, the consequences. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. We may tend to focus on the judgment, the coming judgment, and that they're going to be made ashes. But we have to begin with the reality that they are those from Eden, like the rest of us. That's where our origins are. But because of sin, we have gone astray. And then there's a final oracle in verses 20 to 23, very short, and it's about Sidon, which is a neighbor city just to the north, halfway between Beirut and Tyre. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Sidon, prophesy against her, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Sidon, and I will gain glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I inflict punishment on her and show myself holy within her. I will send a plague upon her and make blood flow in her streets. The slain will fall within her with the sword against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This fellow Phoenician city will also face the judgment of God. And then the last part of chapter uh, 27 or 28 is in fact about the malicious neighbors. Verse 24. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know I am the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. As we saw, the the German word uh, for this situation is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. 
pleasure derived by someone from another person's misfortune. Gloating, I think, is one of the closest words in English as a single word, but I think of it as malicious satisfaction. Um, We read last time, because you clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart. Um, Speaking of one of the four nations, judgment would come. Yet it seems strange that God does not mention that they worship false gods, that they were pagans. It, it is their malicious hostility against Israel, God, the people God has chosen as his own. The result, the nations, these malicious neighbors will be gone. Israel will be gathered from the nations, and then all people will know that he is the sovereign Lord. Now we turn to Egypt, and this will be introduction for what, Lord willing, we will look at next week. Um, The last of the seven nations is Egypt. We have four chapters that deal with the first six. We have four chapters that deal with the last one, that is with Egypt. And we might ask, why does the Lord give such special attention to one nation? One could argue, and some have argued, is because in fact there was extra animosity between the Jews and the Egyptians. The Jews remembered that they had been enslaved in Egypt and God had to deliver them with a mighty hand through Moses. And so there was always this sense of resentment and this animosity against Egypt. I don't think that's the case. Because as we will see, the Lord willing next week, of the seven nations, only Egypt is given a word of hope. Um, If you look at chapter 29, um, verses 13 through 16. It's a hope, but probably not exactly what they thought it would be. Verse 13, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the nations where they were scattered. I will bring them back from captivity and return them to upper Egypt, the land of their ancestry. There they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowliest of kingdoms and will never again exalt itself above other nations, above the other nations. I will make it so weak that it will never again rule over the nations. So they're the only ones who have a word of hope that in fact they'll be scattered, but they will be brought back. God will bring them back uh, to the land of Egypt. Doesn't happen with Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Israel had a long history with Egypt and it's not all bad, okay? We tend to focus on you know, them enslaving the Israelites, but it wasn't all bad. So for example, when Abram, who later became Abraham, moved to the Holy Land, a famine came, and in chapter 12 of Genesis, he goes to Egypt. And there they stay uh, until the famine is over, and then he goes back to the Promised Land, the land that God had promised to him. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, is sold into slavery in Egypt to Potiphar. There he is imprisoned based on a false accusation. He is seen to be able to interpret dreams. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he becomes an advisor to Pharaoh. Jacob and his entire family, 70 of them, move to Egypt. Pharaoh says, you all come down here and live, and live in the land of Goshen because uh, you raise cattle. In its struggles with world powers like Assyria and Babylon, 
Israel had a tendency to rely on Egypt. Egypt was nearby, and they had this long history together. It wasn't always good, but they had a long history together. But this is one of the problems. Egypt became sort of a standing temptation. When things get really, really bad, the Jews would look south to Egypt, a world power, and say, hey, can you guys help us? That Egypt became their hope rather than looking to the Lord God Almighty. There's one more incident, and this is in the New Testament, so we're looking ahead. When Herod wanted to kill the infant Jesus, where does Joseph take Mary and Jesus? They go to Egypt, and there they are safe until Herod dies, and then the angel tells Joseph, the one who wanted to kill you is dead, you can go back home. So it isn't all negative. I, I think the best analogy that I can think of, I hope it's not a bad one, is between the United States and Great Britain. That in fact, we fought the Revolutionary War to get our freedom from them. And yet, if you look at American history from the time of our independence, well into the 20th century, whatever the British did in terms of foreign policy, that's what we did. That we had, we sort of paralleled. We looked to them for guidance and you're like, wait, Aren't these the guys you kicked out? Why are you looking to them? It's the same, very similar to what happens between the Jews and the Egyptians. But in the process, the Egyptians become this false hope, which we will see, Lord willing, next week, that whenever the Jews got in trouble, they'd look to Egypt rather than looking to God. But God had a purpose for them. And in Matthew chapter 2, we have the prophecy fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son, when the baby Jesus, we don't know how old he was, the little boy Jesus, is brought safely out of Egypt and brought back into the Holy Land. So what can we learn from what we see today? First of all, it almost seems trite, but I think we forget the beauty of humanity. Far too often when we find people who disagree with them, with us, we tend to dehumanize them. We tend to call them names, to see them as less than human. And we forget, oh, you know what, this person that I really, really dislike because of their politics or their philosophy or, or anything, this person is in the image of God. This is the image of God. This, this jerk that I can't stand is made in the image of God. Even calling him or her a jerk, I think, reduces them to something less than what they are. And this is not what we hear from God. Even as God announces judgment, and it is a terrible judgment that will fall on these people, he points to the glory of them. There's a beauty in them. There's something glorious about them. They've achieved great things. The problem is they became exalted and they saw themselves, the king of Tyre, as gods, as those who could determine their identity and more. And so how does God respond? Yes, there's going to be judgment, but there is lament. God mourns. 
He mourns the fall of Tyre. He grieves over creatures who are made in him, his image. They are made for better things than what they do. They were not made for sin, and yet that's the direction they go. This is what we hear in Ezekiel. This is what we see in the Lord Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem. The people who in a few days will put him to death. I wonder if that's true of us. Do we see the beauty in those around us? And do we weep for their fallenness and for their having gone astray? What is God's response? It is lament, but ultimately it is judgment. And that judgment is death. As I said earlier, death is God's refutation of humanity's habitual self-deification. From Adam and Eve on, those who were promised to be like God, human beings have, in fact, if not using that language, okay, to say, I am a God, or I sit in the place of a God, to say, I determine who I am. I determine my identity. Okay? And without being too controversial in today's world, I will determine my pronouns. Okay? I will, I will decide. And God's response is death. But there's another death we need to think of, isn't there? And that is the death of Jesus on the cross. And in this event, we see the death of death in the death of Jesus. Jesus was not put to death because he claimed to be God. He was God. He was put to death to take our death on himself. That we might be forgiven of our self-deification, our sins, our disobedience. It is in the death of Jesus, who is God, that the sentence of death has been removed. For Tyre, and we will see, Lord willing, with Egypt, this sense of I am God. I am as wise as a God. I sit on the throne of a God. God's answer is he weeps for them. He weeps for them. But they will die. This is a consequence of believing that in fact you are a God. I think self-deification has existed throughout human history. I think in our time it has exploded. Again, people don't use the word God, but they take on the functions of God as that's, I will decide those things. I'm in charge of my life. I'll do it my way. And while it is tempting, very tempting to want to say very negative things about such people say what fools you are and in fact they are fools because a fool is one who does not recognize that God exists we should weep we should mourn 
because these are people who have the image of God. We might say, oh, they're losers. They have the image of God. We might say they're foolish. They bear the image of God. And when you see that in this book of Ezekiel, which is primarily God judging his people, he doesn't forget about everyone else. And he sees in them, he sees in the king of Tyre, he remembers Eden back when everything was perfect. By God's grace, I wish we would do the same. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture tells us this. And sometimes it becomes really self-evident in the lives of people that this is the case. But far too often we forget that they have value, that they are made in your image. Just as we read about the king of Tyre, there is beauty in them. You may have to look really hard, but it's there. And you see it. And in spite of disobedience, you see that beauty. And you lament how it's been twisted by sin. And there will be judgment. But by your grace, and only by your grace, we will be spared because Jesus put to death death when he died on the cross. He took our sins on himself. By his stripes we are healed. We live in a time in which self-deification is exploding. Though people don't use the word God, they act as though they are God, that they in fact are all-knowing, they know what's best. And they forget that one day they will die. May we, as we deal with people, be gracious, kind, tender-hearted, and recognize that this person I'm speaking to is one made in the image of the Creator. I thank you for the care in which you announce the coming judgment. You don't simply snap your fingers and say, you're dead, you're all dead. But you see the value of humanity. By your grace, may we as well. We pray that in this coming week, we would have a sense of your presence. You'd be with us. You are with us as we walk through this world. Guide us. Give us the strength that we need. We pray for Lonnie that you would touch her, that you would restore her health. Pray for a good visit with her doctor this week. We thank you for your love, your deep, deep love for us that you've shown by sending your son. 
May your spirit and your grace go with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.